Nerdy Moderates, many of you know that politics and political data and everything that comes with it, I kind of take uh, take a view that it's kind of like my Super Bowl. You know, political geeks like me cherish this, and especially an election year coming up, probably the biggest we've ever had. And here to pour over some of uh, or much of uh, what we're looking at in this crazy, bonkers political time is Kyle Kondik. Kyle is the managing editor for Sabato's Crystal Ball, which is at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Kyle, welcome to Dirty Moderate. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to start with a piece that uh, Tom Etzel wrote in the Times yesterday. I think it'll be a good uh, portal for us to, to dive into the sort of Biden troubles, if you will, and we'll we'll go from there. Uh, this this essay yesterday, which always he always amalgamates a lot of different uh, people's data and opinions. It's called "This Is Grim," and this is what um, uh, Etzel writes: The predictive power of horse race polling a year from the presidential election is weak at best. The Biden campaign can take some comfort in that. But what recent surveys do reveal is that the coalition that put Joe Biden in the White House in the first place is nowhere near as strong as it was four years ago. These danger signs include fraying support among court constituencies, including young voters, black voters, and Hispanic voters, and the decline, if not the erasure, of traditional Democratic advantages in representing the interests of the middle class and speaking for the average voter. Any of these on their own might not be cause for alarm, Etzel continues, but taken together, they present a dangerous situation for Biden. From November 5th through November 11th, Democracy Corps, a Democratic advisory group founded by Stan Greenberg and James Carville, surveyed 2,500 voters in presidential and Senate battleground states, as well as competitive House districts. And in an email, Greenberg summarized the results, quote unquote, this is grim. The study, he said, found that collectively voters in the Democratic base of Blacks, Hispanics, Asians, LGBTQ plus community, Gen Z millennials, unmarried and college women give Trump higher approval ratings than Biden. Obviously, we've been seeing a number of polls that have showed a, a, um, a, a lot of weakness in the Biden re-election campaign, and not just national polls, because I always tell people the election is going to be one in six states, roughly, so forget national polls. What do you make of what Etzel uh, is saying here, and, and what are you looking at numbers-wise that compares or contrasts to it? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the polling data for Biden over maybe the last, particularly the last month, month and a half has really been poor. And, yeah. you know, I guess the, the big headliner was the New York Times, Siena College polls and, and those, just the, the imprimatur of the Times and um, the fact that I do think they put a lot of, you know, money and resources and time into these polls. And, you know, the New York Times is so well read by particularly people on the left that, you know, Biden was doing really pretty poorly. And I think it was six swing states they, they polled. Biden was only leading in one of them, Wisconsin, and it was only by a small margin. Uh, and so that got a lot of attention. And within the sort of guts of the polls, the crosstabs, what, you know, what Edsel is referring to, you do see some of the weaknesses, you know, amongst young voters, amongst non-white voters, sort of the core Democratic constituencies. And so there's been a lot of like back and forth about how meaningful this is, of course, as Edsel notes, and as, you know, studies have shown that, you know, polling this far out is not necessarily predictive. On the other hand, like in 20, in, in 2020, uh, you know, late 2019, the New York Times did some state level polls that actually ended up being probably better than the stuff they put out right before the election. Now, part of it was that COVID kind of messed everything, messed everything up. And it was, it was sort of this, this roller coaster ride where Biden's lead seemed a lot 
you know, bigger at, at times than it actually ended up ended up being. Um, and you can say, hey, Biden and Trump are, are both sort of known commodities. It's not like the, you know, the Republican challenger is is some unknown person or, or someone who still has to introduce themselves to the national audience. Um, so I do think there are a lot of Democrats and, and people who are rooting for the Democrats, I guess, who are are concerned. And that seems reasonable to be that way if you're if you're worried about the president whose approval rating has been pretty weak for much of his presidency, although that's no different than certainly no different than, than, than Donald Trump um, throughout his throughout uh, Trump's presidency. Now, I do think that some of this is a little overstated. Like, I just don't believe that at the end of the day, 18 to 29 year olds are going to be competitive, you know, in, in terms of like Trump having a chance to win them. I just don't see that the, right. the, the, you know, past couple of decades, you know, young people have, have generally moved to being much more democratic. And I think there's also some polling or there's some suggestion that, that polling may be understating the traditional democratic strength, particularly with, with black voters with non-white voters in general. Now, again, like, you could believe those things and say these polls might not be reflecting what reality ultimately ends up being. But if there is even some weakness, given how close our elections are, then I think that is, you know, that is cause for concern. So it's like these polls don't have to be perfectly correct for Democrats to still be worried about these core constituencies. Um, I do, you know, one other thing that I do think is, is important to note here is that like, you know, there's so much focus on Biden as the incumbent president, you know, Trump has been able to run, frankly, a pretty sleepy primary campaign because he's so far ahead. He hasn't had to go to the debates. He's still, of course, you know, saying outrageous things, but he's not getting the kind of coverage that I think he, he you know, used to get. Right. Um, also, his legal troubles are going to be more prominent next year because he's actually going to be, you know, he's going to be uh, um, in court for some of these things, although I guess he has been in court um, recently. But, you know, there probably will be a time where the focus will move more to him. And my guess is that this is going to be a race, if it is, in fact, Biden versus Trump, where you're not going to want the spotlight. You know, usually you think in politics, like, oh, I want to dominate the news. I want people to be thinking about me. When you got two candidates with pretty lousy favorability, you probably want the, the, the public to be thinking about the other guy. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's true what you say, too, is uh, about Trump's legal troubles, because also one of the things that kind of got buried in the reporting on the New York Times poll, the Times-Siena poll that everybody freaked out about, or many people freaked out about, was that if Trump is a convicted felon, Right. Or found guilty in any of these cases, his numbers tank with independence and at least in court of that poll. You know, I mean, they're looking at Trump as a uh, indicted but not convicted felon. So I, I do wonder if those legal troubles as they mount. Clearly, there's 91 uh, felony counts. He's going to get convicted for something. I don't think he's going to be in prison, but he may be running as a convicted felon. And that that we haven't had before. Uh, I mean, Eugene, Eugene Debs ran from jail, obviously, but none of us were alive. But but that should be an interesting, um, interesting set of circumstances, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, we're we're in uncharted territory, but so much of what we've dealt with with Donald Trump has been kind of uncharted, uh, uh, you know, territory. And I, you know, I don't know what to make of, um, you know, how soon he could be potentially convicted of something, because I always just think of the the legal process as just taking a really long time. Yeah. And there's just the ability for the defendant to kind of kick the can down the road in various ways. And, and I think Trump has some experience doing that, although the charges he's facing now are much more serious than, than legal issues he's faced. Um, he's faced in, you know, in the past, back in his days as a, you know, as a, as a private citizen. Um, so yeah, that's another feature here that again, I think maybe, maybe we're catching, you know, maybe the polls in November were catching Trump at sort of a higher point than he otherwise would be. But 
you know, he's also polling better than he did in 2016 or 2020 is compared to his, you know, leading democratic alternative. So there's that. Um, we also know that the electoral college, at least over the past couple of cycles has had this kind of Republican lean to it. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, the, 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 the state that decided the election voted, um, several points to the right of the, of the nation as a whole. Um, so, you know, it may be that, that Trump doesn't actually need to win, you know, he probably doesn't need to win the popular vote necessarily. And as you mentioned, you know, that what, what are we talking about here? You know, probably six, seven states that are really decisive. I mean, there were, there were, so there were seven states decided by three points or less in the last election. Um, Biden won six of those seven. So, you know, Arizona, um, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and then North Carolina is the one that 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 Trump won. You know, those are the states we're probably going to be focusing on this time. You know, if there are other states that emerge, it might be because the election's tilting one way or the other. You know, if we're talking about Minnesota and New Hampshire being competitive as they really were in 2016, not so much in 2020, that's alarm bells for Democrats. If we're talking about like Florida and Texas and North Carolina being competitive, that maybe indicates that things are tilting against the against the Republicans. You know, come next fall. But um, we're we're in a, we're in a time period of, you know, arguably the the most the most competitive era in American presidential history. Um, the only other time that really compares to it is the late 1800s, which is also a time where you had a couple of what we call electoral college misfires, where the person who got the most votes did not actually win the electoral college in both 1876 and 1888. Um, same story in, in, in 2016. Um, but the country, broadly speaking, is not competitive because so many of the states are landslides for for one side uh, or, or, or the other. Um, one other just quick point about these demographic issues that Biden is having. If in fact Biden is holding up, um, relatively speaking, better with white voters than he is with non-white voters, the effect that could have is that maybe like a California or New York, you know, has like a slightly reduced Democratic margin, which is actually what you saw in, uh, um, at least in California, um, in uh, comparing 2016 to 2020. It's one of the few places where um, Biden's margin was actually a little bit smaller than, than Hillary Clinton's, but it didn't matter because the, the California was super Democratic. Um, and so, you know, maybe, uh, maybe Biden holds up better in some of the swing states than he does, relatively speaking, in some of the really red or the really blue states, particularly the blue states that are that are pretty um, racially racially diverse and have these kind of big metro areas with a lot of with a lot of young people. Um, that's kind of what we saw in the 2022 midterm. In that, you know, it was kind of a red wave in a lot of the kind of you know slant states that were like strongly red or strongly blue. Um, but in the in the in the most important presidential states, Democrats did quite well. Um, so that's something to think about too. That you know. Part of what happened for Hillary Clinton in 2016 was that she basically traded a lot of useful votes in the swing states for not very useful votes in sort of Republican Sunbelt. Now, in 2020, those were useful votes for Biden. And he, you know, he won some new states for Democrats and he also won back some, some states that Hillary Clinton had lost. It is possible that Trump could do a similar thing in that maybe he he loses some useful votes in the swing states, but he picks up ones in states that aren't um, actually that helpful for him. And maybe that changes how we view the, the Electoral College and how it relates to the national popular vote. Right. I mean, in, in your from 30,000 feet, you know, the the, the narrative um, continues to be. I, I actually think there's reason for it that that working class voters uh, largely men, but not only men of all colors, you know, the identity politics thing has tripped up the left. Now I think it's eating them alive and it should have never been a gambit. However, 
working class men, especially Latino men, are trending away from the Democratic Party. Do you do you see in your data, the data that you've studied across various platforms and the way you do it, are you seeing this this working class shift um, multi ethnically, um, kind of marching uh, in the other in the rightward direction? There is some evidence for it, and I think yeah. we saw that in the in the 2020 election results. Uh, Patrick Ruffini, a Republican pollster, is from Echelon Insights. He has a new book out uh, called Party of the People. And of course, he's coming at it from a Republican perspective, but I thought the book was pretty good and um, I think is uh, is worth reading wherever you, you sit on the, the political spectrum. And he you know goes through some of this stuff and some of the opportunities for Republicans and some of the, the changing, you know, the changing demographics of the parties. And it is kind of odd that like, so, you know, we think of the Democrats as being the, well, I guess the party of the people to borrow the the, the, the book title. And you, particularly if you go back to like the days of the New Deal and um, and Franklin Roosevelt and, um, and, and, you know, the sort of integration of the labor movement basically into the Democratic Party um, and the Republicans sort of more of like the business class party. And then that's kind of, that's kind of changed over time. Um, and mm. that, you know, the Democrats have added, kind of more white collar voters while subtract while subtracting blue collar voters. And in some ways you wonder if that eventually may have an effect on like the actual governing philosophies of the parties, because the Democrats are still the let's raise taxes and let's yeah. have more social programs and all that stuff. And the Republicans are still a laissez faire economic party. Although some people within the Republican party, now some of the newer voices are really not that way, no. or at least not, at least in terms of how they talk about things, you know, we'll have to see how it figures into a governing philosophy. But like, whatever you think of like Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri or J.D. Vance of Ohio, they don't necessarily they don't sound like the people who came before them in those in those Senate seats. And they're a little bit different than the kind of older school Republican Party. Again, I don't think it's really translated to policy that much, although I think you probably do see it on the foreign policy front in that, you know, some Republicans kind of have been more dovish on foreign policy, um, you know, basically not wanting to, you know, to uh, uh, invest American dollars in Ukraine and certainly not, you know, American soldiers, although that's not something that Democrats are, or, um, or even those most supportive of uh, fighting in Ukraine are generally, um, uh, are generally supportive of, you know, actually sending, sending boots on the ground there. Um, but so there are some changes going on, but um, you just wonder if that might, you know, how, how that might change things. And there are some voices on the Democratic side who are saying, hey, parties need party needs to get back to basics in terms of uh, kind of an economic message and, and maybe um, not not uh, not being as vocal about certain hot button social issues. But of course, there are a lot of people, in the Democratic Party, who 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 push back on that, too. So there's a lot of there's a lot of churn going on, I think, in, in the parties and. Um, you know, some of the things that we sort of associate with the two party coalitions, maybe they change over time based mm. on um, the parties that the, 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 the people that they're bringing in and also kind of pushing out. Yeah, well, the party certainly, as we know, um, in the 60s, had a huge shift over race. But, you know, I was thinking about something, you know, I had the uh, pleasure of interning on Capitol Hill two summers, once for Bob Graham of Florida, who you may remember. Uh, who was also a governor, um, who was a senator, because I'm originally from Florida, and a congressman named Peter Deutsch. And this is 1994 and 1995. So it's, you know, 30 years ago or so. Bill Clinton's in the White House. One of the <laughs> things you saw, though you started to see, uh, as, soon as, as soon as Gingrich came in, a real fracture, partisan kind of polarization emerging, which I think we're, we're still living with. But the thing that I think gets buried a little bit, and I'm curious if your take for your take on this, 
There is a partisan divide, but there is a rural-urban divide as it relates to what the Democratic Party, their direction they're going, and the Republicans. And I say this to say that what people who are not old enough to remember, right, um, is that there were liberal Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. The parties were less polarized because they had... Um, pretty strong, even if they were small factions who were able to be restive and, 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 and ideologically hybrids that, sh- that made the parties more responsive in many ways to the center and less polarized, you know, um, well, that doesn't get enough attention. Yeah. We hear what you hear. Oh, Democrats are the, they are the college educated elite urban party. Well, that's a huge thing because that means there are a lot less rural Democrats out there connecting to voters in the vast swath of red across the United States. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to like, you know, throughout the set, the back half of the 20th century, a lot of the presidential elections were really not competitive at all. No. One of them it was, was 1976 between Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford. Right. And, you know, Carter was the last Democrat who um, he won um, all the, all the States of the old Confederacy, except for Virginia, which interestingly right. is now the most reliably democratic States of the, of the 11 states of the old confederacy but it it its realignment toward the republicans was sort of uh um a little bit different than some of the other states in part because of growth in northern virginia which was republican at that time and now is super you know cobalt right. blue democratic well, they were moderate republican suburbs right yeah that's right that's right yeah and a lot of a lot of places like that have kind of realigned more toward the democrats um over time, but in the 1976 election, so Carter won by two points nationally. A lot of the individual states were competitive, yeah. and uh, in that election, I think it was something like 30 percent of all the House districts voted for one party for president and the other party for 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 their House members. So that's a a, a large amount of crossover. In the uh, 2020 election, under the maps in place in that election, only 16 of the 435 districts you know, we're crossover. So whatever percentage that is like three, four, 5% of all the districts. And you see the same thing in the Senate level, you know, you would have um, like back then you would have had a lot of Southern Democrats who were still elected in the Senate, even though those States other than 76 um, were, were starting to vote Republican at the presidential level. Of course, Reagan did quite well in those places. Uh, you know, the Bushes did, I mean, you know, that that's been a continuing story, but um, a lot of those Democrats held on until like 2010 or 2014. Yeah. Um, and now you only have, there are only five senators out of the hundred who represent states that their party did not win in the 2020 presidential race. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Manchin, who's retiring in West Virginia. So that's going to be a Republican Senate seat um, starting in 2025. And then John Tester of Montana and Sherrod Brown of Ohio, both of whom Face tough re-election bids, and, would you think yeah, in states in states that are very likely to vote Republican for president, uh, and then you've got Susan Collins of Maine, who who did win in 2020 um, as a Republican in a Biden state, and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, who um, you know came pretty close to losing in 2022. So that's it. Um, you know, if you'd go back a generation or two, you would have seen a much long, longer list of folks like that. So you know, there's been there's been all this sorting that's been going on, and. It has made the parties, I think, more ideologically consistent than they used to be. I mean, certainly, like the Democratic House majority of, uh, you know, the most recent one in 2020, in, in, in the 2021 2022 Congress, it's only 222 members, but it was much more solidly liberal than. Um, than the that Democratic House majorities of like 2009 and 2010, where you had 
couple dozen or several dozen more members, but a lot of them were kind of still, you know, rural Southern, Southern or Midwestern Democrats who um, didn't want to vote for like the Affordable Care Act and those sorts of things. So, um, you know, Pelosi might have. Blanche, Blanche Lincoln in the Senate and people like that. Who yeah. Yeah. Colin, Colin Peterson in Minnesota, who, yeah. who who finally lost in, in 2020. And he was kind of the last like real outlier because he held a, a, a 30 point Trump district. Um, currently no one holds a district. I think, I think the highest is maybe 15 or 16 mm-hmm. points that, you know, voted for the other party in presidential and yet they hold it. Um, and they're, you know, they're a handful of, uh, it, it currently under, under the, under the present maps, there are only five Democrats in uh, Trump one districts. And then there are 18 Republicans in, uh, Biden one districts, actually 17 because George Santos is one of them. And he is now a, a former member of Congress, but that is a seat that Republicans are defending on Biden one turf. Um, so again, a much lower number than we've seen in the past. And so, um, it's, it speaks to the ideological cohesion of, of the parties, and even in the Republican side, you would have had, um, you know, just some more kind of like moderate members. I guess they're, st- they're still around, although I honestly don't really, I try not to use the word moderate to describe any member of Congress. I guess th- <laughs> there may be like a couple you could say. Um, but for the most part, it's just like, how conservative are they or how liberal slash progressive are they so there's not no dirty moderates left huh None? not that they're like a set like a, like a true centrist i mean i guess maybe i mean i think mansion probably was the, the closest you had to that and even yeah. he's headed for the exits <coughs> yeah i mean the other thing you know to to get granular about it people have to remember too so you have the rural urban divide but you also have you know, really the, the days, and we're going back now 50, 60, 70 years of the pre-culture war days. You had So what you had was you have the civil rights and voting rights and fair housing bills getting through largely, not exclusively, but largely with Republican votes, not Democratic votes, because the Democrats had such a huge swath of the South. But you had like Nixon backing the ERA. For example, Dole back in the era, young Gerald Ford in, in Congress voting for civil rights, things that the Republicans would just vote for that were not demagogues. We didn't have cable news. We didn't have, you know what I mean? They, they, they might represent lily white districts in the Midwest, but they were the party of Lincoln. And they went ahead and voted for that. And, and, and actually, not until really Schlafly and the, and the moral majority and stuff came along and became part of the Republican coalition, did all this cult and abortion, of course. Did the culture war stuff come up? And I think that had a lot to do, took time, right, with with making um, the power grip that the Southern Democrats had on their seats in the old Confederacy become Republican because there was no way that the nationalization of the brand Democrat wouldn't be tainted by identity, gay rights, and all this stuff, anti-gun, you know, all the stuff that that essentially took over because Tip O'Neill's all politics is local, which used to be the adage. I still think holds power, but I think it's been overrun by the nationalization of our politics. Don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, our politics are, are very much nationalized and it, we, you see it in the results and that the, the presidential results are more highly correlated with the down ballot results than, than they've been at any time in, in, in recent history. Yeah. Um, the, you know, abortion issue is an interesting one in that when, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, um, and in the aftermath of that, you could have imagined a world in which the Republicans were the pro-abortion rights party and the Democrats were the anti-abortion rights party, in part because um, the Democratic Party was sort of 
um, so affiliated or, or, or so dependent on the support of Catholics. And of course, the, you know, the church has a, you know, has a strong sure. anti-abortion, uh, abortion rights stance. Of course, you've got, even today you have, you have, uh, prominent Democrats like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi who are Catholic, who, um, you know, have, have this sort of still have this tension between, um, you know, their, their sort of place within the church, I guess, and, and then also their place in politics. And of course, they are in their political roles are, are very much, you know, pro-choice, pro-abortion rights Democrats. And um, that, that does get Democrats into trouble sometimes with with their own, you know, church going and, and, and what, what have you. But, um, but you know, abortion became, or, or, uh, opposition to abortion rights sort of, um, there was kind of this internal fight within the Republican Party, the, the 1980 Republican convention and, and Reagan kind of established the Republicans more as the anti-abortion rights party. And then, um, <clears throat> you know, you also associated the, the Democrats with being sort of the, the, the party of the, the women's rights movement as well. Um, and so those things got sorted out over time, but, you know, even now, or, or I mean, I guess the parties are sorted on the abortion rights question too, but you did still have a lot of anti-abortion rights Democrats and a lot of <coughs> pro-abortion rights Republicans um, for, really for a long time and still do to a certain extent, but not nearly to what it, the parties were, were much more uh, jumbled up on that issue a few decades ago than, than they are now. Yeah. I mean, to, to the point of the pro-choice woman, I mean, I think, you know, there seem to be two groups here, at least at the presidential level, that could be proved decisive according to data that of people I've spoken to and read. One is, of course, that what will um, uh, lat the, what will the Latino vote do? Meaning, they're not going to go overwhelmingly for Trump, but 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 Biden may win a smaller percentage of it because they may vote GOP. But pro-choice suburban women, the moderate. Uh, in Virginia probably won't be in play, but you know, the suburbs of Northern Virginia, the suburbs of Philadelphia, Michigan, these are the people who were McCain Romney voters. And then Roe was overturned and they went, are you fucking kidding me? We were voting for tax cuts and all this shit. You know, you didn't, we're not supposed to do this. This was supposed to be bullshit. And it happened. And you saw them um, in 2022 vote democratic. You know, the Lincoln project has targeted them as sort of former you might say the old GOP voter, you know, that mainline, mainstream, um, pro-choice, pro-gun control, largely college-educated woman voter. Um, that could be Biden's strength if abortion is the centerpiece of the campaign. Yeah. Look, I mean, you know, Democrats have done really well on the abortion issue in, in places where it's mattered uh, since the Dobbs decision. Yeah. Um, you know, we just saw in Ohio, there was a you know statewide ballot issue that, that did quite well um, in that state. It was really kind of this like two two tiered fight in both August and November. And, you know, the Democratic position got uh, um, 56, 57 percent in, 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 in both of those elections. Uh, and, the, you know, the Republicans have lost all the statewide ballot issues about about uh, abortion rights and, in, in, you know, ranging from blue states like California to Vermont to red states like Montana and Kentucky. Now these are, you know, different, different issues, <coughs> different wording on them, et cetera. Um, but the results have all been, uh, been pretty similar and all in, in, in one uh, direction, but of course voters are not voting just on abortion rights. They're voting on all sorts of things. Um, and, you know, so, so it's not like every Republican who as anti-abortion rights was punished, you know, far from it, but uh, it is an important uh, issue. And it's one where Democrats, frankly, have an advantage over Republicans. <coughs> Do you, um, uh, you know, getting down to the, I know you're looking, which is very important, the Senate map and the House map. I want to talk to you about that too. So this year, 
obviously the Democrats, you know, I think overperformed, or at least the pollsters got it wrong about a red wave in 2022. Everyone look at it. This Senate map in 2024, though, is deeply inhospitable to Democrats, right? We just talked about um, Ohio, Sherrod Brown, who has been popular and survived in 2016, even as Trump carried those state by like eight points. Uh, Tester in Montana, you know, who's been holding on. And of course, Republicans will win that seat now that Manchin isn't running. I think they would have won it at the state in the race. Talk a little bit about the Senate map, you know, um, where there might be other states that the Democrats might have strengths or might not, uh, and what that outlook is. I really want to break that down. You know, the Democrats have had several... Uh, the Democrats have had several strong elections on this class of Senate seats. Really, 1994 was the last time Republicans had a good election on this map. So, yeah. you know, 2000 Democrats gained seats, and actually, um, they ended up having not, you know, control of the Senate for part of Bush's first two years. Jim Jeffords left the Republican Party. Um, 2006, Democrats flipped the Senate. 2012, they actually picked up a couple seats as Obama was reelected. And in 2018, um, the Democrats lost a little ground in the Senate, partially because they held a number of seats they really have no business holding right. in like North Dakota and Missouri and Indiana. Um, Rick Scott very narrowly flipped Florida that year, too, which I think sort of you know, was it was a signal of what maybe what would come in 2020 when Florida moved a little bit more toward the Republicans in that in that year. Um, but, you know, for Tester and Brown up in 06, 12 and 18, um, they had decent environments. Um, you know, uh, 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 Mitt Romney carried uh, Montana, but uh, I think Montana was probably more open to voting Democratic down ballot back then than maybe it is now. But, you know, Tester still won in 2018 as well. But I think this is probably going to be the hardest kind of political environment for them. And it's also a time where, again, the results are more nationalized than they were in 2018 or 2012. <coughs> so that's a challenge for Democrats right there. And then there are several other uh, seats that Democrats are defending in states that Biden won, but we're very close. So you've got Arizona and, you know, potentially Kirsten Cinema running in a three-way race. Um, you know, Democrat Ruben Gallego, uh, Republican Kerry Lake, probably the nominees for there. And then we see if cinema runs or not. Um, you know, Bob Casey in Pennsylvania, open seat in Michigan that Alyssa Slotkin, Democrat, is like probably going to be the nominee for. And there's a crowded Republican primary. Um, Nevada, very competitive state with Jackie Rosen. So like, you know, there's there's a way in which things sort of like get out of hand for Democrats um, if, you know, if they're losing the presidential race too and um, losing these states for, you know, at the, at the presidential level. And all of the, the ones I mentioned were either, you know, were Trump states like Ohio and Montana or um, were very close for president uh, in, 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 in 2020. You know, meanwhile, there aren't there really aren't that many credible uh, Democratic targets. You know, Florida with Rick Scott and Texas with Ted Cruz. You know, maybe maybe one or both of those races pops. Um, you know, I think Democrats, particularly in Texas, have a decent candidate there in Colin Allred, um, former NFL player who's a, who's a member of the House, who was one of the you know kind of star Democratic candidates in flipping the House in in 2018. Um, you know, maybe maybe. You know, something good happens there for Democrats, but those are two states you'd, you expect to vote Republican at both the Senate and presidential level. And then the rest of the states, the Republicans are defending are, are generally like pretty solid red states. Yeah. Um, and in the um, House, we're obviously, uh, well, Santos is out, but, you know, as I as I understood it and watched it two years ago or a year and a half ago, the the red parts of the 2022 kind of wave that, that was really just sort of like a little rivulet, really, were up in New York and other sort of blue areas, you know, which which sort of gave the Republicans a narrow 
House win. Now it's very, very tight now. And I would think with a lot of these uh, Republicans up in Biden-leaning districts, the Democrats just mathematically will probably flip the House. Uh, am I am I reading this correctly, or is it hard to say? I think it's hard to say. Um, you know, there is still some redistricting fights to get finished up um, in New York State. Democrats tried to gerrymander it last time. The court, the state courts, stepped in and prevented them from doing that. Um, the Democrats may ultimately, through other court action, get get another get another bite at the apple. There, uh, North Carolina went from having a court imposed map uh, to one that's a Republican gerrymander, so that the Republicans are going to pick up at least three extra seats in North Carolina. Um, the Democrats might pick up; they're probably going to pick up a seat in Alabama, maybe Louisiana too, based on um, the Allen versus Milligan decision from this summer from the Supreme Court, which um, basically has allowed. Um, Democrats to pursue the creation of majority minority seats in, 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 in a few places. So there's still some moving pieces, but, you know, ultimately I think where you look is that there, there are a number of Biden one districts held by Republicans in both California and New York, and those are going to be the big targets for Democrats. (coughs) Yeah. Um, Do you see North Carolina because people are eyeing that um, in the presidential election. You know, Nevada, and I say this in relation to Nevada, Nevada since 08 has voted presidential, has voted for Democrats in the presidential election, but each cycle it gets a little less blue, even in 2022, even though uh, Cortez Masto eked out. I mean, if ever a small, very, very tiny win, uh, the Republicans won back the state house. Um, and Nevada will, I think, be very much up for grabs. But let's just assume Trump wins Nevada, which he has never won. He's lost it both times by a hair. Could North Carolina, even though Obama carried it back in 08, I know that was kind of an outlier year, um, could North Carolina finally be the sort of purple state it seems like fighting to be um, in a presidential election? I still think it's it's you know several ticks to the right of the nation. Um, that's where it sort of consistently sat for a long time now, and you know it kind of seemed like maybe a decade ago that it would be like the next Virginia, but um, you know certainly Raleigh, Durham, and Charlotte have gotten a lot bluer over time yeah. as a lot of big metro areas that used to be uh, more competitive have done. But you know the the um, there are some kind of growing. Um, kind of retiree sorts of places in Eastern North Carolina that are um, adding people and getting redder. There are some kind of uh, traditionally kind of blue dog democratic areas in Southern North Carolina um, that have gotten uh, more Republican over time. So there's this kind of continuing shift (coughs) in that state and it's sort of the changes have kind of canceled out to make it um, just a little bit right of center and consistently. So, so, I mean, I think if the Democrats are winning North Carolina, it's probably not that close of a presidential election. Um, Cause I would expect that States like Nevada and Pennsylvania and, and, uh, and, and Arizona and, and uh, you know, Wisconsin, Georgia would be more competitive than it. The, the, the interesting thing is that while, you know, it seemed like maybe, you know, Virginia would realign and North Carolina would, and then maybe Georgia would be after that. Georgia kind of jumped ahead of the line. And part of it is because Metro Atlanta is so highly populated and growing so fast and getting so blue that it has, and also the Republicans were kind of capped out in a lot of the rest of the rural parts of the state. Um, You know, Georgia moved move past North Carolina in kind of the what you know, the realignment pecking order or whatever. And it's not clear that North Carolina is ever going to get there. Um, but I think Georgia probably will get bluer over time or rather maybe less red or less purple. Um, although that's still a, a heavy lift for, for Biden. You know, the, a lot of the news reporting suggests that um, 
the, that maybe of, the, of all the Biden one states that Georgia's might be the least likely to vote for Biden. I don't know if I necessarily feel that way, um, but there, that does, there's, there's a flavor of that in the reporting. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, Nevada, uh, uh, you know, if you have to sort of basically carry Vegas and I guess Reno, cause it's a very sparsely populated state in between, isn't that right? And those 10, yeah, um, it's something like, I think 85% or so of the vote is just in those two places. And, you know, I mean, Nevada is like a city state, you know, it's yeah. like Las Vegas just dominates and, you know, Clark County is a democratic County is where Las Vegas is, but the democratic margin there is, um, you know, it, it really needs to be double digits or close to double digits. And, you know, it sometimes dips under that. Um, and so that, you know, the Republicans won the, won the governorship there um, in part because just the Clark County margin was just not quite as good. And you could sort of see, I mean, it seems like the governor there, uh, Steve Sisolak, former governor, now Democrat, who was the only incumbent, um, the only incumbent governor or Senator to lose in, in 2022 of, of either mm-hmm. party, which is kind of an interesting stat given how, mm-hmm. <laughs> people generally are so negative about um, politics, but, you know, incumbent incumbents were not necessarily punished, but um, you know, I think there was a COVID flavor to that in that, you know, of course Vegas is so dependent on tourism and a lot of people work blue collar jobs there that, you know, you can't, you can't go on zoom to do. Um, and so that was sort of a, a problem. So I think it was actually kind of impressive that, you know, Cortez Masto hung on um, in, in, in that state, um, but, uh, you know, Nevada, um, if in fact there is a, you know, a growing kind of like multi, multi-racial, uh, realignment, um, toward Republicans, Nevada is the kind of place where you might see it just because it is kind of a kind of working class state, you know, like, uh, Georgia and Arizona with, you know, Metro Phoenix and Metro Atlanta, you know, those are kind of more like white collar, you know, kind of high end suburbs kinds of places, um, I could see a world 10 years from now where Georgia and, and Arizona are more, uh, are more democratic than Nevada is. Right. Yeah. Now it's, it's, it's interesting. And speaking of, uh, the sort of granddaddy of prizes, we're back to the Jimmy Carter in 76, not only did he win the Confederate or Confederacy, I guess this includes it, but he carried Texas. He's the last Democrat to carry Texas in national election. And it, we just talked about Colin Allred, who I do agree with you is a formidable candidate house member looking to unseat Ted Cruz. You know, Beto had no such luck. Uh, it's uh, no one seems to be able to kind of cross. I think it was like 52, 48 or something, but in general, I mean, Trump's margin decreased in Texas in 2020 from 2016, but Biden did not come anywhere near carrying it. Is that right? So yeah, it was it was a it was like a five and a half point margin. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Romney. Days, that's big. Yeah. yeah, Romney had carried Texas, I think, by like 16 or so. Yeah. Um. So that's a you know, it's like a 10 point shift, and yeah. um, you know, there's 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 probably more room to grow for Democrats in the suburbs in those places because you still have like you know, some of the suburban counties around, uh, Austin, around Houston, um, the, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth Metroplex, those are still places that are, you know, some of the most Republican leaning big suburban counties in the whole right. country. Right. Um, like there's a, um, uh, I think the, w- there's a County Montgomery, which is North of Houston's Harris County. Yeah. That is still like a 70% plus Republican County. And you look at it, by the demographics and like the racial numbers and the college education numbers, you think, Oh, this place should be, shouldn't be as red as it is, but it, it just is. And, and it's, you know, it just shows that, you know, conservative or Texas is still, you know, kind of conservative leaning. Um, you know, if you pick that, if you had the same demographics in place in California, um, it probably would be a much more democratic place, but there are still sort of differences between the two places. And so it's possible that Texas could end up being like North Carolina in that 
Democrats get closer and closer there, but they can't quite get over the hump. And there also are places in Texas that um, where Democrats are losing ground, like South Texas. Um, a lot of places near the border there used to be much more reliably Democratic than they are now. And that was part of the one of the big shifts in 2020 is that um, you saw these huge swings toward um, Republicans and, and, and Trump in those places. You know, again, you if you're if you're looking at just the population centers, you know, so much of the population in Texas is within the I guess you'd call it that sort of triangle, you know, Dallas, Austin. Houston, and and there aren't that many people who live in South Texas relative to this gigantic state. So if you see the Democrats, you know, this sort of realignment continuing to happen in suburb those big suburban places, the Democrats could afford to lose more votes in South Texas because there might be way more to gain in the more populated places. But um, I still think there's a ways to go for Democrats in in Texas, and so um, but it's important for the party to really try to contest the state and build an infrastructure there. Um, because, you know, if you look at sort of the longer term trajectory of the Senate, you know, let's say if, if Tester and Brown lose this year, you know, that would put the Republicans at at least 52 Senate seats. And that's assuming that nothing else flips. Right. Um, you know, it might be that, that those seats in Montana and Ohio are gone for a generation, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where, where do they go then? And like the Sun Belt's where they got to go. And so they got to find a way to get a seat back in, in Florida or in Texas, or, you know, break ground in Texas or break ground in North Carolina. You know, they've already got both seats in Arizona. They've already got both seats in Georgia. So they have made some inroads there, but they have to make more inroads in that part of the country, given some of their struggles in other places. Yeah. And, you know, just to finish off here, um, I want to finish off with my home state. As I mentioned, I worked for Bob Graham. You know, Bob Graham was a two-term governor, three-term senator. You know, Florida had Lawton Childs and it had all this. And it, yes, it is a Confederate state. It was the third state to secede. You know, it didn't make the cotton that they needed. It was more like a meat factory or something like back in the day. So that's what they produced. But it, but it, it it has always been this kind of like Dixiecrat teetering on maybe red state, even growing up, you know. I mean, Carter carried it in 76, but not until Bill Clinton in 96, if you remember. He didn't even win it in 92. Then we, uh, astonishingly, Obama carried it twice. I mean, it's Florida. When I talk to, uh, and I'm an independent, but when I speak to my old Democratic friends in Florida, they're, it's depression. They just say, Florida's a red state. It's gone, blah, blah, blah. Well, I like, don't know. I, I don't think, know. You know, what do you think? I think you could argue that if Bob Graham's daughter, Gwen Graham, had been the, the gubernatorial nominee in 2018, she might be in her second term right now. She would have beat um, DeSantis for sure. You know, because it was so, so close in 2018. And, and it was you know, Andrew, Andrew Gillum, in 2018. And yeah, yeah, Andrew Gillum had some problems and, and actually had a lot, many more problems after after the fact in, in, you know, in that election. But, um, and, you know, Grant, Gwen Graham came from that sort of, uh, uh, obviously being Bob Graham's daughter, that, that sort of uh, uh, kind of more, I don't know, kind of moderate Southernish Democratic tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know what? What the story in Florida has been is that if you look at if you look at the places that are really growing, of course, Florida is a very fast growing state. It and Texas are you know mega states that continue to grow. They you know Texas added two electoral votes slash House seats in in the 2020 census. Florida added only one. It's kind of a surprise. People thought it would end up being um, ended up being two, but. Um, but uh, if you look at where the places are growing, it's a lot of the it's not necessarily, you know, South Florida or um, or, you know, or, or Tampa, St. Pete. It's like a lot of the um, retirement areas, uh, you know, some of the some of the counties that are sort of north of Miami or, you know, south of, of Tampa, St. Petersburg. A lot of those places are growing fast and getting redder in part because I think they're attracting uh, you know conservative retirees from the Midwest and other places. 
Um, whereas like, if you look at Texas, a lot of the fastest growing counties are red places that are not getting redder. They're sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're getting more competitive over time. Mm-hmm. So I actually kind of think if you look at these demographics, 10, 20 years from now, than, than Florida is. Um, that's, that's how I sort of interpret it. Right. All right. Well, before you go, I know you're in the data business. Are I think you- something happened with the uh, oh, connection. I'm there. Can you hear me? I'm here. Hello? I can hear you fine. Yeah, the both of our videos kind of gave a little spinning wheel yeah. as I was finishing up my answer. So I don't yeah. know if we lost something. Uh, you want to just repeat with the last part of what you said? Oh, no. Wait. You froze for a moment. Uh, go ahead. Repeat it anyway. We can use it. Um to the extent you remember. Uh, if you if you look at the places that are growing in Florida, um, a lot of them are kind of retiree heavy places and places that crucially, um, you know, maybe went from supporting Obama in 2012 to supporting Trump in 2016 or 2020, basically growing places that are getting redder. If you look at Texas, a lot of the growing places are very Republican, but getting a little bit more competitive over time. And so mm-hmm. you could, if you extrapolate that out, and it's probably dangerous to do that, these things can, can change and shift over time. But it may be that that Texas is ultimately the more competitive state in the longer term than Florida is, um, even though I would classify them both in sort of the same category right now as sort of Republican leaning or, you know, kind of com- so- somewhat competitive states that are that are clearly Republican leaning. Right. All right. Well, you know, on that note, I really uh, appreciate your insight and we want you to come back as the election season progresses here and uh and we have more data to work with and give us more of your insights your crystal ball all right if you would um i really appreciate it kyle condic managing um editor over at the uh sabato uh uva center for politics indispensable folks kyle where can people find you on twitter and elsewhere so they can follow you yeah, I'm uh, at K Condic on X or Twitter or what have you. And um, if people are interested in this, you know, this kind of heavy elections material, um, sign up for our Crystal Ball newsletter. We come out generally two, twice a week, usually Wednesdays and Thursdays. Um, CenterForPolitics.org backslash Crystal Ball or um, just, you know, Google uh, Crystal Ball. There'll probably be like an eBay ad for like an actual an actual Crystal Ball thing. You just scroll down, you'll find us. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and thanks for having me on. I enjoyed our chat. Absolutely. We'll all be peering in your crystal ball from now into 2024 and beyond. Uh, We'll list those in the description as well for you, Kyle. So uh, anyway, thank you for your insight. As I said, again, thank you for joining us and we'll see you again soon. Thank you.